Well, good morning. If you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be in about three chapters, so you will be helped if you have your Bibles open in front of you. There's some Bibles in the back. You can just raise your hand. Someone, someone will walk one to you. If you sort of um, read any sort of business literature, uh, business magazines, or take a business class, there's there's inevitably going to be a conversation about clarifying your mission, like who you are as a company, and where you're going, right? And we're told that a good business really simply and constantly clarifies who they are and where they're going. And bad businesses, well, they forget. And they have what, what many have called mission drift. A company that was once you know, clear on who they are and what they did, slowly but inevitably can drift away from that mission, which inevitably spells disaster. But it's not just businesses that have mission drift, right? We can all, as humans, we can all have mission drift, right? We can, we can wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be the best dad or the best student or the best coworker, or the best manager. I mean, we could even kind of apply this to, to religions and say, we're going to be the best Christian today. But then slowly but inevitably, things kind of crowd out that mission and we begin to drift, drift away from the mission. And there's lots of things that can do this, right? There's lots of things that can get in the way of us living up to that sort of mission, that calling of the day. But I found most of the time, it's good things. Most of the times, it's pleasurable things. Most of the time, it's entertainment. I think one of the best kind of examples of this comes from uh, a book uh, from David Foster Wallace called The Infinite Jest. Now this book, it's an odd book, but, but, but this book is about a movie. A movie that is created that was so beautiful, so wonderful, that when people watch it, that's all they want to do for the rest of their life. They kind of are stuck in this infinite pleasure loop where they just keep watching the movie over and over and over again until finally they just die. And, and so America is trying to figure this out. The government is. And so they hook people up to electrodes and, you know, they try to have them narrate like what's going on in this movie that just makes it so addictive, but they can't figure it out. And so these victims eventually are in this endless cycle of this pleasure loop. And everything they once loved just gets squeezed out. And this novel, it's actually a pointed thought experiment. Uh, The author Wallace prophetically in an interview in 1996 said the point of the book is simply this. It's a thought experiment. And it's this. Will Americans, but I think this is broader than just Americans, but will particularly Americans have the wherewithal to keep from entertaining themselves to death? That's what he said was the point of the book. Even entertainment, even pleasure, good things can, well, inevitably push 
us and drift us away from the callings we so desperately once loved. It's mission drift. We all experience it. We're all susceptible to it. And in many ways, this is why we gathered here today, right? We all, in some ways, know the mission for why God called us, and yet we inevitably forget. And so we gather here today today to remember, to, 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 to go back to the mission that God has called us to. And so that's our hope this morning. That's my hope today as we encounter Paul uh, when he gets to Jerusalem. It's that we will be reminded once more of the mission that God has called us to as a church. So the big idea is this, and it'll be behind us. We'll sort of break it down into three acts. But, but, but the big idea, if I could summarize it in a simple sentence, would be the mission of God is the humble and courageous declaration of a resurrected Lord. That's what we're going to look at this morning. If you remember all the way back in Acts 1, early in the summer, Jesus, right before he's ascended to heaven, he, he gathers his disciples together and he lays out the mission. They are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This mission, if you think about it, it's a geographic mission. It's like concentric circles, right? Starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts really is divided up like that. You could divide up the book of Acts as the mission to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. But it's interesting because not only can you break up the book of Acts that way, but you can actually break up the end of the book of Acts like that as well. Because now, Paul, having finished his third and final missionary uh, journey, he now is going to preach the gospel, testify to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. That's what we're going to look at today. Next week, he's going to go to Caesarea. That's next week, Lord willing. And then, in two weeks, we'll look at the gospel through Paul going to the ends of the earth. Paul going to Rome. Only unlike his first three missionary journeys, this time, Paul is going to testify to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in chains as a prisoner. Last week, we ended halfway through chapter 21, and Paul finished up his third missionary journey, and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And his friends and colleagues, even a prophet, prophesies over him and says, don't go to Jerusalem. There's going to only be pain there, only suffering there. Don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul can't do anything other than go to Jerusalem. And one of the reasons is we learned that he is constrained by the Holy Spirit. He must go to Jerusalem. And we're going to notice, and I'm not going to point it out, all of them, but Paul and Jesus, there's just a lot of eerie similarities. Just like as you're reading Luke's first account of Jesus kind of part one, we're looking at Jesus part two in the book of Acts. But, but Jesus, you know, he's ministering in Judea and Samaria. He's, he's ministering. And then at some point, about halfway through the gospel of Luke, Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and begins walking towards Jerusalem, knowing the pain and suffering that would befall him when he arrives. And so in like fashion, Paul now turns his face towards Jerusalem you know, he turns his face like iron and flint and walks to Jerusalem knowing that suffering 
would befall him. Well, let's pick up the trail, Paul's trail in chapter 21. We'll, we'll start in verse 17. Chapter 21, verse 17. When we came to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went to us, to James, and, and to all the elders who were present. After greeting them, he related to one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to be, circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves among them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter that among the judgments that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself among them and went to the temple giving notice of the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offerings presented for each one of them. We'll stop there. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem and he meets with the Jerusalem elders, the leaders, including James. And we're told, not here, but in other places, that one of the reasons why Paul is going to Jerusalem is that he has a gift, a monetary gift from, you know, the, the Asian church, what was there then Asia, from the Gentile church, he has financial gift that he wants to give to the Jerusalem church. And one of the reasons why he wants to do this is he thinks that it'll be a goodwill offering to them to kind of bridge this, this, this tension, this disunity between Jew and Gentile. And so he shows up there and he gives this gift. And then he kind of explains, as you noticed, he, he explains, verse 20, all of the things that God has done through his ministry in this last missionary journey. All the, all the men and women who have believed in Jesus, been baptized. And they're, they're amazed, these elders, when they hear all the stories, right? We know what that's like. I mean, when someone gets baptized, this is one of my favorite parts, when before a baptism, we, we have them share their testimony, and it's just amazing, right? And that's what Paul does. He, he shares these testimonies of, of God's saving grace, and these elders are just amazed, and they glorify God. But that is short-lived, because there's a problem. You see that there's a rumor going around that Paul is teaching everyone that, well, you can just kind of abandon the Jewish cultural traditions and that, Jew, that, uh, that, that Paul is teaching against those traditions, the traditions of the Jewish people. And so uh, these elders have an idea. They've got some wisdom and advice for Paul in order to bridge this in the midst of this sort of slanderous, malicious, untrue um, talk that's going around. These elders go, we've got an idea. We want you, there, there are these four men who are about to enter a Nazarite vow, and we want you to pick up their expenses. And let me just say, that expense, that it was very, very expensive, right? 
He had to pay for their sacrifices, four of them. Um, he, he had to go through a purification ritual. He had to do all these sorts of things. And they say, will you go through this? Because having gone through this, we think that this will be a, a goodwill gesture. It'll, it'll kind of proclaim to the Jewish Christians that you're not against them and against their customs and against their traditions. It's kind of like, a, 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 I remember a, a friend, a woman who was ministering in the Middle East was telling me that, that she was leading this sort of Bible study and uh, there's these women who came out of Islam and were worshiping Jesus, but, but they still wore heads, head coverings, right? It was just part of their tradition and custom and they still wore it. And she said, well, I too wore a head covering. It was my way of, of aligning myself with them. And that's what's going on here. This is not just Paul saying, I'm going to go through these hoops. It's Paul saying, I want to have some solidarity with the Jewish Christians. And I want to show that it's okay. There's no compromise in Paul here. And it was quite a gesture, wasn't it, right? It was a financial gesture. Paul had to go through some hoops. He didn't have to do it, but he did it. Why? Oh, it's a really simple answer, I think. It's a really simple answer as to why Paul went through all of these, these sort of cultural hoops. It's the reason why Paul's in Jerusalem. Paul had a singular purpose. Paul had a sort of singular heart, a, a very humble heart, a loving heart. Paul yearned for, for solidarity between Jew and Gentile Christians. Paul wanted a unified church centered around worshiping a unified God. I mean, if, if you want a glimpse of, of, the, of Paul's heart for this, I mean, you can just read uh, um, something that he wrote in the book of Romans. Paul wrote, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, this is hyperbole, right? This is exaggeration for effect, but, but you get the point. You get the heart behind him. He's basically saying, I would be accursed. I would be damned if only my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he preached Christ, and, and when the gospel wasn't at stake, he would accommodate people in order for them to understand Jesus that's Paul's singular purpose. He, he wants to preach Christ. That's his message. He wants to preach Christ and him crucified. And yet from time to time, depending upon the context, Paul would take on different forms, different behaviors. Remember that famous few verses when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians? He says, I, I am free to all, but I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. And the point is always the same, that I might win them, Paul writes. Paul wanted by all means to save all people. And so here Paul accommodates culture and tradition, and he does so in order to win the hearts and minds of the Jews, and especially the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem. Paul's on mission. 
He's on mission to see Jew and Gentile worship Jesus in the same church. And, and he didn't want to put a needless stumbling block in front of people. And so if the gospel wasn't at stake, as it was in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, when he said, nope, nope, you don't have to get, uh, uh, you don't have to get uh, circumcised in order to be saved. But, but here he's saying, no, the gospel's not at stake here, so I will go ahead and go through these traditions. He will at times abstain from food. He will at times abstain from, from, from drink. And he does all of that for the sake of them meeting Jesus. You see, it's not just enough to get the, the sort of message right. Our, message, our, our methodology should be connected to and flow out of our message. The message is about God's son laying down his life. And so our methodology from time to time is that we too lay down our lives and our rights and our privileges and preferences for the sake of the mission, for the sake of people coming to know Jesus Christ. It's a sort of humble orthodoxy, right? It's a, it's a sort of generous gospel, a thoughtful evangelism. To, to, to think about what might be offensive and to say, well, I know that the gospel is going to be offensive. The gospel is always, in one sense, offensive. It confronts people in their sin, but we want that to be the offense, not what we dress like, not what we eat. We want people to be confronted by Jesus, and that's the mission. And so we want to put the message and the methodology together, as Paul did, which means from time to time we have to give up our privileges, our preferences for the sake of others. And it's not just evangelism, right? We, we do this as we gather as a church. As we gather as a church, all of us have various preferences, things that we like, things that we would like that would be a little bit different. And so we come together saying, yes, we're all different with different likes and privileges, and yet we put those things aside from time to time because of the mission of God. We set aside those cultural things out of love for one another. And it reminds me of uh, when we, my family transitioned from Corvallis up to Portland, Oregon, before we actually made it our way up here. And as we did that, my, my son had a really hard time transitioning to a new church and that children's ministry. I remember the first month we would drop off um, our, our son to the children's ministry and he would hide under one of the tables. And, you know, you, you don't exactly know what to do in those moments. But I just remember there was this man, this retired teacher, and he just said, I've got this. And, you know, he's got all these kids or whatever, but he just took pity. He was just merciful on my son. And he just sat next to him and just waited until he felt safe to come out. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He, he made sacrifices in order to do that. I'm certain it was uncomfortable, and yet he did so. He laid down his rights in that moment for the sake of that little boy. And I'm certain that, that no book is going to be written about that. But there's a crown ready for that man, for that generous, sacrificial gift to my family and to that little boy. Isn't it beautiful when you see someone just laying down their rights? There's just something beautiful about a man or a woman laying down their rights for others. And that's what we have here. That's what we have with Paul. He lays down his 
writes because he wants Jewish Christians to know Jesus. Well, after Paul does this and he's in the temple, well, a riot breaks out. Let's pick it up in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. For they had previously seen Thropimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribunal of cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. We'll stop there. So Paul's in the temple. Right? And some people recognize him. Actually, some, some, some Jews in Ephesus evidently recognize him and they start, you know, just hashtag fake news kind of thing, right? They, they, they start telling people Paul is against the, the temple, even that Paul brought this Greek into the temple, right? There was a, a section of the temple that that only Jews could go into. The Gentiles couldn't even go, even Gentile converts, but they couldn't go to. And he's saying, oh, Paul's just, you know, just bringing Greeks all over the place in the temple, which wasn't true at all. But it doesn't really matter at that point, right? And so just this, this mob is just whipped up. And then Paul is eventually, right, kind of, the, the, the Romans have to get involved, right? Because they're trying to figure out what's going on, why this uproar, they're trying to kind of squelch this, Mob, and, and so they, for Paul's protection, they, 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 they imprison him, and then they bring him before the tribunal. Then in chapter 23, and, or in chapter 22, and we'll get there, I'm going to skip it, but in, in chapter 22, we have Paul's kind of speech. This is the first of five defenses Paul gives before various kind of um, high courts, some Jewish, some Romans. But, but, but we see here that Paul, right, he had such high hopes in Jerusalem. But then everything starts falling apart. And it's going to get even worse. Go, go with me to chapter 22, and we'll go to verse 30. We'll start in 30. But on the next day, this is after he, he's going to, this is the, the, the sort of next day of all these events. Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, this is the Romans, and commanded the chief priests and all the councils to meet. And he brought Paul down and set them before them, set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. 
And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil to the ruler of the people. Now when Paul received that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose among the Pharisees and Sadducees, and, he, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and commanded sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribunal, after that, Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also to me in Rome. We'll once again stop there. So, like, the the Romans don't know what to do with Paul, right? So they take them to the religious high court of the day. They take them to the high priest, and they say, "You, you figure this whole business out. Like, why is it that everyone wants to kill Paul? And so Paul's there. He, he, he kind of mistakenly um, gets, gets angry and doesn't realize he's talking to the high priest. And so he, he kind of backpedals a bit. And, and then he kind of realizes that there's both Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul himself is a Pharisee. And so he sort of kind of pits them against each other. I don't know if you noticed, right? To try to get itself out of this. And it kind of works. Until it doesn't work, right? And then they too kind of are whipped up and the Romans have to step in again saying, well, we got to protect him because the Jews are going to rip him to pieces. And then, if you go down and I didn't read this, starting in verse 12, he's still in prison and he's in the barracks and his, there's a plot. So some 40 men say, I'm not going to eat until I kill Paul. They make that vow. It's a serious vow. And uh, Paul's nephew finds out about this. He warns Paul. He then, then warns the Romans. And so the Romans then go, okay, we got to get Paul out of Jerusalem. And so by like 200 armed soldiers, they march Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea by night. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. Paul had such high hopes in Jerusalem, didn't he? He'd put everything on the line to, to bear witness to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And yet, literally, around every corner was a beating. Which should kind of eerily remind you of a sort of prophecy placed over Paul right after his conversion. Do you remember this? Paul is converted on that road to Damascus. He's blinded. And then Jesus appears to Ananias. And Jesus says to Ananias, Go, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul lived up to that prophecy, didn't he? He suffered greatly. He suffered greatly for the mission of God. And yet in the midst of that suffering, did you notice that promise? 
Did you notice Jesus appears again to Paul? Verse 11, look at it. 20, chapter 23, verse 11. He appears and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also to me in Rome. God wasn't done with Paul. It sort of looked like it from his vantage point that, like, you know, that game set and match. And in the midst of that, Jesus himself comes to Paul and says, you got a mission. You're going to Rome. Six times there is an account of a vision that Paul receives. There's six of them. Starts in chapter 9, 16, 18, 22, 23. And the last vision that Paul has is in chapter 27. They're all actually quite similar in some ways. If you go to chapter 27, I'll just read it. This last vision the Lord comes to him and says, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. Remember what Ananias said. Not only would he suffer, but Paul would give witness to the Gentiles, to the children of Israel, the kings. And so it would be. And so the point is not that that not, the point isn't just that God had a mission for Paul. It's that God was orchestrating providentially all these things in order to accomplish his divine plan. Paul's going to Rome. Ain't nobody going to stop him. That's not the question. Paul's going to Rome. The question is how? And, and did you just see just how ironic, just the irony dripping off the page Right? Who's protecting Paul all throughout this? Like, who is God raising up to protect Paul? The Romans. How ironic is that? God uses, like, these, 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 you know, ungodly people who don't believe in God. He's raising them up. Similar to in the Old Testament, when God raises up Assyria and Babylon in order to judge his people, God's, like, raising up the Romans in one sense to judge Israel. And so God sends Paul to Rome in one sense because of Jewish hatred of him. And God protects Paul through the Roman guards. Some 200 armed men eventually get Paul up to Caesarea. Isn't that how God often works, right? Doesn't God often use weird, unorthodox techniques in order to accomplish his wonderful ends. I mean, my, my guess is we could all tell various stories that you're like, yeah, that was weird. God used a weird person in order, or a, a weird message in order to kind of accomplish wonderful ends. Like, the, the person who was the biggest instrument in sharing the gospel with me into my conversion, like, th- that, that last person didn't even believe in Jesus. It was like a joke and a dare. That's my, that's my story. And it's kind of funny, but God literally used someone who doesn't even believe in Jesus in my life to lead me to Christ. That's so much of our stories. And so in the midst of this sort of vision that Paul has, he, he is comforted, Paul is. He, he's comforted to know that even in the midst of his suffering, he is going to accomplish what God has set before him. He needs to remember that he has a mission and it's not just to die in Jerusalem. It's to go to Rome. Paul's not going to die prematurely. Actually, no 
person dies prematurely. God sets before all of us divine appointments. God sets before all of us work for us to do, right? He, he, he knows beforehand the, the good works that he has set before us to walk into, as Ephesians tells us. Some of us who have been in church a long time, and maybe even church in this, been a member of this church for a long time, can, can almost be nostalgic at the past, right? All the things that God has done in the past. And yet we ought not to forget that God has wonderful works for us to accomplish in the future. If God was done with this church, with the mission of this church, we would not be gathering here today. So whatever season you find yourself in, whatever this past week has been, this past year, whatever, just know this, that as an individual and then corporately as a church, God is not done with you. God still has work to be done through you. Now, we've sort of been dancing around this message, this central message that Paul has been preaching, right? It's, he's on mission, but he's on mission to do something, to, to proclaim something. And so these three chapters, it sort of centers around a message. I skipped it, but we're going to go backwards. Go with me to chapter 22. We're going to look at this message. Verse 1, brothers... Fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. This is Paul speaking. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of the fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison before men and women as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed uh, toward Jerusalem or to Damascus to take those also who were to bring them into bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And he said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told what, what is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing uh, and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know this will, to see the righteous one and to hear the voice from his mouth. For you will be my witnesses for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So so in many ways, Paul's defense is sort of a rehashing of his conversion, right, from Acts chapter 9. It's a retelling of his testimony, how he met Christ. Paul is on the Damascus road, and and he sees a light. And and if you see a light like this in the Bible, you see it in the Old Testament. This is a theophany. It's an appearance of God. And God appears to him. Only Paul's confused because it's not God, it's Jesus. And it's at that point the light bulb begins to turn. Paul's blinded, and then eventually he gets to Damascus, and Ananias explains it all to him. And you see in his testimony there, in his defense, what a 180 Paul had, right? Paul was killing Christians and then when he met Christ, he began to kill it for Christ to use slang, right? Paul was imprisoning Christians and now as a result of meeting Christ, he is the one bound and imprisoned because of his love for Christ. What a one-up. 80 degree. No one could believe this. Paul, the great persecutor of the church, became the great propagator of the church. And this all took place because on that road, a light came. Not just a light bulb, but a light came and Paul met God. Jesus showed up. And there's a play on Lord and Jesus And it doesn't matter, but the whole point is that Paul finally realizes Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He had thought the Christians were nuts. They were blasphemous. But then Jesus shows up, and he finally realizes it. Jesus is alive. Because if Jesus was dead, game, set, and match, Paul would be right. Jesus wasn't dead, right? Proven by his appearance to Paul, Jesus was alive. And so he's then sent on this humble and courageous mission, right? To testify to a singular message that Jesus, having died for sins, is now alive. That's not just the Easter message that Jesus is alive. That is the Christian message that we preach every Sunday, that Jesus is not just stuck in a grave, but he is alive. And if that's the case, then it's not arrogance, our message. That's what the world will tell you, that that us saying, actually, we have the truth, that that's an arrogant proposition. And it would be arrogance if not for the singular reality that Jesus is alive. And if he's alive then it's not arrogance. There's a humble love in just saying, no, no, no. He's no longer in a grave. Having lived a perfect life, having died for sins, he is now alive. And we might not meet Jesus in the same way Paul. Actually, we we most certainly will not. Paul's unique and redemptive history, but we can all meet and have a changed life just like Paul. Paul did. Actually, when you meet Jesus and you have that, 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 that moment, 
that clarity that Jesus is Lord, it changes everything. Which doesn't mean that you're not sinless, but it does mean that your life takes a radical change and you realize that you were bought at a price and Jesus doesn't just call you, but then having called you, he then sends you. Just like Paul. Paul's mission was unique in a time and place, but, but the same mission that Paul had is our mission too. God calls the people to himself, and then he doesn't say, now just twiddle your thumbs until I return. It's not, it's not the idea. He calls the people to himself, transforms them into his, into his image, gives them his spirit, and then releases them on the world and says, now you are going to be my witnesses that I am alive. That's the mission. And everything in this world is going to try to kind of push out that singular mission. Good things, important things are going to constantly try to make you have mission drift. And yet this is our mission. It's Paul's mission. It was Peter's mission, the disciples, the early church mission, and it was handed down from people to people, Christian to Christian, church to church, and it's landed on us. And it's simply this, that in word and deed, wherever God has sovereignly placed you, in your family, in your work, as we gather together corporately, it is to testify every day that Jesus is alive and to live in light of that, to live in such a way that we are saying that I wouldn't be living this way if Jesus were dead. That's the mission. And it comes to us today. And so my prayer this morning for you as we close is that as we see Paul living on mission, we too would be reminded that God not only calls us, but he also sends us to make disciples by testifying that Jesus died, but then God vindicated him. God approved of his death, accepted his death, and rose him from the grave, ascended him to the right hand on God, which means that Jesus right now is interceding on our behalf and then is orchestrating all things so that we can accomplish that which God has divinely desired for us to accomplish. Isn't that wonderful? That's our mission. It's not a burden. It's a delight. It's going to take courage. Certainly. It's going to take love, sacrifice, absolutely. It's going to cost us our reputation, inevitably cost us our reputation. This message will always cost us our reputation. Just we got to just make peace with that now. But in the end, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Let's pray. God, we, we acknowledge that that not only have you called many of us to your son, Jesus Christ, and transformed us, giving us the Holy Spirit, invited us to live in your kingdom as you are the good and gracious and great king. And Lord, yet we know that there are so many things that just try to squeeze a a joy and passion and intimacy for your glory and your name to resound throughout this world. So Lord, we pray, Lord, that in those little ways in which We have neglected the mission that you've given to us as a church, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would center our lives back on glorifying you by making disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to weigh all that you have called us. And Lord, we know, as you promised, that you will never leave us or forsake us.
We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.